Uh, why don't you bow with me and let's pray. Father God, we're uh, grateful to gather together as the church here and then at the uh, chapel and at the venue at Mountain Valley and Cactus and to gather as your church and worship you and lift up our voices to you to interact with each other as the church. And now, Lord, to turn to your word, which Christians for 2,000 years have believed strongly is one of the primary ways that you speak to us. So speak, we ask you to now. Uh, give us vision for our very lives and for our church. And Lord, as the title of our talk goes, help us to understand what makes us us as the church here today. Uh, inspire us, we pray, in Jesus' name. And we all say together, amen. amen. So it might have been mentioned earlier, uh, I want to talk today to you guys about the power of values, uh, the power of values. And because that word values is so overused today and used in so many different contexts, I want to begin by defining for you exactly what I mean when I use the word values. If you were to look up values in the dictionary uh, this week or today as I did this week, you're going to find that probably the best compilation of definitions would look something like this. So what values are, are that which we hold dear, the importance, worth, or usefulness of something. And let me repeat that. It's really important that we dial into this. Values are those things, they are the beliefs or the actions which a person holds dear. Uh, to, to put it in the vernacular, they're the things that you and I put in the front of the line in how we think and how we behave. By the very nature, those are the things that we value. That's what a value is. And, and what's so powerful about values when you see it that way is that everyone, and I mean everyone, even every group and organization has values, whether they know it or not, everyone has things, think about this with me, that they prize and hold dear. Everyone has things that they put to the front of the line that determines their beliefs and their actions. It's just that some of those things might be good things and we call them good values and some of them might be not so good things and we call them bad values, but make no mistake, they're still values because values are things that we hold dear, they're things that we prize. You see, when you see it this way, you can begin to understand that Howard Stern has values. Some of you never thought about it that way, but he does. You can even quote me on that. Howard Stern has values. Given our definition, Howard Stern values being decadent and promiscuous. He values saying shocking things, even sinful things. He values rebelling against cultural norms. In other words, those are the things that he puts in the front of the line in his beliefs and actions. Those are the things that he values. It's just that it's probably not the values that you hold. Uh, on the other end of the spectrum, Billy Graham has values. Billy Graham values the gospel of Jesus Christ. He values his family, his, his kids and his grandchildren, his dear wife who's departed. He even now values in his old age, he's 97 this year, he values helping old people learn how to die with heaven in mind. He just wrote a book on that. In other words, I love Billy Graham because of his values, the things he puts to the front of the line. Are you starting to see? The list really goes on and on. Steve Green and Hobby Lobby have values. Tim Cook and Apple have values. Oprah and Dr. Phil have values. Your neighbor and your coworkers, they all have values. I thought about it this week. Even my dogs have values. Have you ever looked closely at their lives? 
My dogs have four values. They value in order, food, sleep, fun, and garbage cans, which really goes back to the food part of it. The point is, we all have values. So nobody escapes the values equation, but the issue does become this, and I hinted to it earlier, and it's seen in our examples from Howard Stern to Billy Graham. The issue becomes, what kind of values do you have, right? The issue becomes, what things, out of the myriad of choices of things that you and I have in this world, what things are we going to prize? What things are we going to hold dear? What things are we going to put to the front of the line when it comes to our thinking and behaving? Because there is such thing as good values and not so good values. And it's here where things get tricky because our culture, our world around us would say, well, who's to determine what's good and what's not so good, right? Right? Like, who's to judge that one? And what's been the Christian answer for 2,000 years now? Anybody know? God. <laughs> God is the one who determines what is good and not so good. Man, if you didn't know that, that's worth the price of admission here today, which, by the way, is free. The reality is, is that Christians say God is the holder of our values. He is the one who in history past and now through the word of God in history present tells us what things to hold dear and what things to not hold dear. In other words, we get our values from this book. We hold dear the things in this book because God has revealed these things to us. And again, there's people in culture today, maybe people you work with or family members or friends who will say, well, I don't need God to tell me what things to hold dear. I don't need God to tell me what to value. I'm my own man. I can do it on my own. I love this quote that I ran into a little uh, while back from, uh, from uh, Christina Hoff Summers in her book, The War Against Boys, uh, that was published by Simon & Schuster a few years ago. Uh, look at what she says. Again, she's talking about children here, but we'll tie it to God in a second. She says, leaving children to discover their own values is a little like putting them in a chemistry lab full of volatile substances and saying, discover your own compounds, kids. And she's right. I, I don't know of too many parents that would disagree with this. I don't know of too many parents, there's the odd parent, but too many that would say about their children, I'm not going to give them any values. They're just going to have to discover everything on their own. I mean, I guess if you're a hardcore libertarian, you might believe that, but the reality is most people would say that little children need guidance in their values, and that's exactly why we have parents and even good parents. So here's the operative question. Does God call us his children, yes or no? Yeah, he does. And God says, just like you as a parent give your children values, you're my children, and I know a lot more than you do, so I'm gonna help you with your values. And to shun him and say, I don't want any part of that, is like a three-year-old saying to mom and dad, I'm not listening to you. You can do that, but mom and dad aren't going to be very happy with you. And could it be that's where some of us are with God? You see, at the end of the day, God says he has some values for us. And part of the Christian journey or the faith journey is to learn his values and to adopt them as our own. So what are those values? Well, we talk about them a lot here. And for this series that we're in right now, I want to wrap it up by talking to you very specifically, and I don't miss this, about what God's values for the church are. 
And I think you guys know by church, I don't mean the building or the facility or, or the policies we have and things silly like that. No, the church meaning the people, you and I, gathered here today and at our campuses and venues, what are the values that God has for us? In addition to our vision that we saw two weeks ago, in addition to our mission that we talked about last week, in addition even to our statement of faith which are the doctrines that we hold very dear from the word of God, what are the values, if you will, the operating values that God has for us as a church? And though one could argue in the Bible, there are many of them, I wanna share with you today what I believe are the top four values that God has for us as his church. Four things that define and distinguish us. From anything else in culture, you're going to love this as a church. And I'll warn you, some of these things are so powerful that they actually appear in our bylaws here at Scottsdale Bible Church. That when we were incorporating as a church 55 years ago, the founders of this church said, these are the things that we hold dear. These are the things that make us us. And the first one's actually in our name. And it's called Transformational Bible Teaching. We're Scottsdale Bible Church for a reason, and that's that we believe that one of the things that distinguishes us is transformational Bible teaching. Now, what do we mean by that? Here it is in a sentence. We believe and value that the Bible is God's authoritative, inerrant word to us, his instructions for life, and that when we rightly understand it and live it courageously, it becomes highly transformative to our very experience. That's what we believe here at our church. If you don't believe me, look at how the Bible self-attests to this reality. In Romans 12, 2, it says very clearly, do not be conformed to this world, but be, say the word with me, transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And that word transformed here is a very, very unique and powerful word. It's the Greek word metamorpho, where we get the English word metamorphosis from. And it's only used four times in all of the New Testament. Once here, another time in Corinthians, and then twice in the Gospels, interestingly, when it's describing how Jesus was transfigured on the mountain or transformed in his appearance when he was with a few disciples up on the mountains, when he showed his glory to them and was transformed in appearance. And that's really the idea, that it's possible, possible for believers to be transformed, changed from the inside out, not in our appearance like Jesus, but in our character. So like a butterfly that was once a caterpillar, but has gone through the cocoon process and now has been transformed, believers can and should become transformed in our very character to the representation of Christ. And we do this through the renewing of our minds, which elsewhere the Bible says comes when we understand his truth, the Bible. So add it all together, it's supposed to work like this. We understand God's truth, we think about it, and then we act upon it in our lives. And over time, the Bible says, you become a different man or a different woman. You still got the same temperament, you still got the same personality, whether you like it or not. But the reality is, is that something's changing in you. And we believe that that's how God changes us around here through the teaching and understanding of his word. And just so we're really clear on what we're talking about here, gang, 
Uh, Here's some examples uh, of what this means. Uh, Some of us were once bad or okay husbands and fathers. And the Bible says that once you come to Christ and start to be transformed by his word, you become a good or great husband or father. Where once we were placid and come what may on our jobs, just sort of doing our thing, now we work unto the Lord and we become great workers that anybody would want to hire. Where once we were spendthrifts and debt-ridden and greedy with our money, now we avoid debt, we live within our means, and we know what it means to be generous to those around us and to God's work. Where once we were ruled by the whim of our emotions, men, anger, and greed and impatience and things like that, now we're in control, as the Bible says. We learn self-control when it comes to our emotions. I love how the Bible sums it up so neatly. It says in Ephesians 2, where once you had no hope and were without God in this world, now you have come home to him. And over time, it's a process. You begin to be transformed and changed by the renewing of your mind. And this is supposed to happen every time. I mean, one notch at a time that you read the Bible on your own or you're listening to a preacher or you're in a Bible study discovering uh, some truths in a small group that as you assimilate God's truth into your life, you become transformed. And that's what we value here at our church. That's why we teach the Bible unashamedly and clearly and authentically and applicationally because we believe in transformational Bible teaching. It's what makes us, us. Now, as you're chewing on that, there's a second core value that makes us, us. And I got to warn you, this one is somewhat unique to Scottsdale Bible Church, at least in the way that we apply it. And the value is this. We call it engaging worship. So you got transformational Bible teaching. And the second value that would be in the top four of us for us is engaging worship. So to best understand this, look at how Psalm 95 verses 6 and 7 describe this engaging worship to us. This is rich. It says, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker. For he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. And I got to tell you, there's a lot of great poetry going on here, but, but try to dial in to the progression and even the profundity of what's being put forth to us here. It begins by saying that we gather to worship. That's what you and I do. That's what we do at Cactus and Venue and and the chapel and Mountain Valley. We gather as congregations to worship God. And how do we worship? We sing to him. We read scripture. We pray. We might even fellowship a little bit with each other for 90 seconds. Uh, We might even do some liturgy at times. Uh, But we come together to worship God. Now watch this. And the response of worship is that we begin to bow down. We begin to kneel before the Lord our maker. Maybe not always bodily. I mean, maybe it's happening more in your heart and your mind, but the idea is that you start to engage God through the act of worship, through focusing on him, through all the things that we do. And before you know it, something's happening in your heart and mind where you're kneeling and you're bowed bowed down. And the end result is, is that you go, whoa, he is our God. And we're just the people of his pasture. 
as my friend Schrader says, you start to realize how high or big God is and how not so high and big you are. It starts to put you rightly and, and, and in a good way in your place. And, and you're engaging God in worship. And we believe here that that's the experience that we need to have as we gather together each week to worship him. You know, I, I, one of the saddest things for me is, and again, I, I don't mean to shame you. I really, really don't. But somebody thanked me for saying this last night. One of the saddest things for me is when I see people walk in consistently and chronically late to worship. And again, I'm not picking on some of you. I don't do a head count. I don't stand out there and go, well, you were late last week. Why are you late this week? Or anything like that. But when I see people wandering in late, the reason it grieves me is because this is not warm-up music that we're doing here. It's not preamble. Uh, this is very important stuff. That, that settles our hearts and prepares our minds for our time in the word, but it's just as substantive for our meeting time as the teaching of the Bible. Amen? It really is. And, and again, I know some of you go, well, I don't like singing. Really? I mean, I, I, just, I would just caution yourself from saying that. It might be true, but the problem is, is that when you get to heaven, you know what God's going to ask you to do? He's going to ask you to sing. And honestly, in your redeemed state in heaven, I promise you, you're not going to say, well, God, I don't like singing. <laughs> you're not going to say that to him. You're going to be fully redeemed at that moment. No more fallen mind, fallen body, a resurrection body, a mind completely focused on him. And believe me, you will sing in heaven. So the logic is you might as well start to practice now. <laughs> and some of you might want to learn to do it now. Because read Revelation 4, you're going to be before the throne for all of eternity singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And, and so we, we sing that now just to prepare our hearts and our minds. And man, that's really important stuff for you and I to do. And, and what, what I mentioned earlier that we were kind of different than maybe some other churches here is because... <laughs> You know, I, I've said this before. I've gone on record saying that, you know, uh, 60, 70 years ago, everything changed with Elvis. Some of you lived through that. It really did. I'm telling you, when the technological revolution came and Elvis, who really could be kind of the inventor of rock music because before that it was just the big band and that wasn't too bad. I mean, when Elvis and the Stones and the Beatles and Chuck Berry and all that came, came out, I mean, it just, it just slammed church culture. Some of you remember that. I mean, rock and roll music was not accepted as a norm at all. In those early days, it was seen as, as evil and worldly and even satanic. And it was eventually guys like Larry Norman, who were forerunners of the Christian rock music, that, you know, he, he wrote a song called, Why Should the Devil Have All the Good Music? You know, and, and, and the idea was it's just notes. And, and eventually they baptized this, this rock music and, and started writing Christian words to it, which, by the way, is what Martin Luther did in his day. Uh, you know, when he wrote A Mighty Fortress is Our God. So they, they baptized this music. But, but, but we now live in a church culture in which we have very diverse musical tastes. Have you ever noticed that? So when I got here nine years ago, on Sunday morning, we only had one size fits all. We, we allowed contemporary music in our church, but only on Sunday night. And, and, and it would, never came on Sunday morning. And I spent my first year here getting so many emails from you guys. And I realized this, that, that our one-size-fits-all package was just enough to tick off everyone. 
I mean, honestly, I'd get emails saying, it's too loud and I don't like it. And then I get emails saying, where's the contemporary stuff? You know, I'd be going, oh my gosh, everybody's mad with this. And so I said, you know, time out, time out. We need to develop, diff and it just makes sense, differing venues, because we're already meeting in five different services, differing venues for differing styles so that, watch this, there are no excuses when it comes to us not engaging God, amen? No excuses. So now we have traditional worship over in our chapel. God bless you guys. Now we have blended, usually, we're in a little bit of a rock mode right now, but come this fall, we'll be blended here in the worship center. Choir and orchestra and hymns and choruses, but not too loud. The drums will be behind a cage, that type of stuff. <laughs> yeah, right there. But then on Saturday night and at our other two campuses, we have contemporary worship, which is fully band-driven, and some people really love that. And I got corrected the other day. I've been saying for a long time that our venue across campus is also contemporary. Somebody said, no, we got a fourth style now. They're modern. I was like, really? What the heaven is modern? And they said, it's a notch beyond contemporary. And I thought, well, I didn't even know that. But it makes sense. As different generations come up, listen, Dale Galloway once said to me, he's one of our pastors, he said, here's the thing about worship. Most people worship by memory. They, they, they worship based upon a developmental approach from their youth and the music that they grew up with and the music that's very meaningful to them. That's the language they speak. And to try to ask them to change, especially if they're over like 40, good luck. And so I wasn't going to fight that one. I was going to develop, and the only complaint I get now, and you got to love Christians, I mean, they're just wonderful people, the only complaint I get now is that I'll say, somebody will say, I don't like to worship here, like on Saturday night, and I'll say, well, you know what, we have your kind of worship on Sunday morning at nine in the chapel, I don't want to come Sunday at nine, I go, really, really, that's the issue, so you're going to die someday, not now, that's not like an, an Ananias and Sapphira sin, but you're going to die someday, you're going to get to heaven, and God's going to say to you, why did you not engage me in worship? And you're going to say, because they didn't offer it at the time that I wanted it. <laughs> See, I don't think we want to think like that, gang. We have a church, and you're blessed to have this, that offers at least four different styles of worship in 11 different service settings. And we don't do this because we're bored. We do this to help you engage God. And so when we come in here, I don't care what your bodily posture is. If you love to raise hands, raise hands. If you want to clap, clap. If you want to be solemn, be solemn. It really, that's not the issue. The issue is, though, in your heart of hearts, are you engaging him uh, with, the, with the worship that's being offered you, whether it's your song or not? Because engaging worship is a huge value for us as a church. So track where we've come from. We got transformational Bible teaching. We have engaging worship and then a Third value we have, now I warn you, this is the most challenging for us right now, you'll see why, is authentic community. Authentic community. I, I, I want to share with you what I believe authentic community is about, and let's do what we always do. Let's begin with the Word of God. In Romans 12, verses 15 to 16, Paul the Apostle is writing to the church in Rome, and he's giving very pastoral words at this point. He's starting to wrap up the book. And he's giving words to them specifically on how they're to function as the church. So this is very relevant to you and I. And he says these very profound words. He says, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. 
Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Haughty means proud. Never be wise in your own sight. You know what blows me away about these words on relationships is that Paul is essentially telling us, inspired by the Holy Spirit, to be real and authentic in our interactions with each other. Did you catch it? He's saying if the interaction requires joy, then have it be joy. But on the whole other end of the spectrum, if it requires weeping, which is like a strong form of crying, <laughs> then let it be weeping. So he's giving you the gamut there. He's saying that whatever the situation requires, as you fellowship with each other, as you interact with each other, be in the moment bearing each other's burdens, as he would say elsewhere, and allow the full gamut of emotions to be in play. Don't you love it? He's saying if it's joy, then shout for joy. If it's weeping, then don't be afraid to shed a tear. In a very real way, he's saying, church, be real, be authentic, give people permission to allow them to be human, because if they can't be human here, then where can they be human? Because they sure don't feel safe out there. This, as Larry Crabb says, should be the safest place on planet Earth. And you know, when you think about it, Jesus modeled this for us. I love it. Jesus was joyful and upbeat with his disciples at times, giving them wonderful, fanciful illustrations about camels and eyes of needles and things like that. And, and if you ever doubt that, read out in True Blood's The Humor of Christ. He, he points out in, how in first century culture, Jesus had quite a bit of humor in the way that he dealt with people, a lot of joy. But then he wept at the news of Lazarus' death. He was filled with peace during his all-night time of prayer with the Father on multiple occasions, but then he sweated blood in the Garden of Gethsemane at the mere thought of the cross. So let me ask you, if the, fully, if the incarnate, fully God, but fully human Son of God could display such emotions to his followers on planet Earth, then don't you think there just might be a message there for you and I? You know, I, when I first got saved, I, I entered church world very quickly, and I, I really was amazed at how much fakery, how much inauthenticity, and even how much shallowness exists within the church. I, I think psychologically, it's because a, a lot of us are very defensive people. We have a lot of wounds. But we don't let our guard down very easily. I, I, I get that, and I was one of them. And so for like, really, six or seven years, I just played the church game. <laughs> After I got saved and I put on my best face and I came to church and, oh, good to see you, brother, and praise God and all these things. And, you know, I, I learned the language and, and, and I learned to be good in church. But, you know, behind the scenes, I was a mess. I, I've shared this with you guys. I had a lot of anxiety. I had depression. I went to seminary and I really wondered if I should be a pastor because what I felt didn't match what I was asked to be. Can any of you relate to that? I just, I just there was a private me and a public me and, and the two were very different and I, I hated it. This is a true story. I, I, I interned at one of the largest churches in the nation and it was very intimidating at that time back in the 80s and, and it was this huge mega church before there were mega churches and I was very honored to be there and, and it was just a, a, a very hard year for me because I didn't feel very successful as a pastor and I'm trying to, you know, I just, I was a mess. And I needed to get a job outside of that. And I have a master's degree in divinity now, and I don't know how to do anything else. So I started interviewing with churches. And most of the churches that I interviewed with just looked so good, and you would even know some of them. They were very powerful churches, and because I had a great resume, they were very interested in me. But I'd 
walk away from each interview just feeling almost schizophrenic. Like the real me was not the me I just showed you and this just feels weird. Eventually I got contacted by a church in Detroit uh, called Ebenezer Baptist Church. What a name, Ebenezer Baptist Church. Uh, but I liked the guy in, in the interview. His name was Kevin. And, and eventually Kevin flew to Chicago where I was at and he met me at Denny's and he started interviewing me. This is a true story. Halfway through the interview, I looked at him and I just said, just stop. And I literally started to cry. <laughs> Don't do that in an interview. I started to cry. <laughs> and I looked at him and said, I'm a fake. I said, I'm a big fake. I said, I'm depressed. I'm lonely. I'm not even sure I want to go into ministry. I said, I'm a real mess inside. But I, I do know this. I love God. I'm saved. I, I, I'm trained now for the ministry. But I just, I'm terrified to go into this. And he looked at me, and I'll never forget this. He said, I'm lonely and depressed too. And he said, I've been in therapy for the last two years. And he said, maybe you could come to Detroit and let's see what God does through a couple of depressed people. He said, actually, there'd be three of us, and Wes is depressed as well. <laughs> and, and, and honestly, it was one of the very first times I ever felt like church was real. And so I moved to Detroit, to Ebenezer Baptist Church, and it was a mess, and we were a mess. And for nine years, the Lord used us to take a little fledgling Baptist church from about 300 to eventually about 1,500 people as it grew and as we reached a lot of lost people and built a staff team. And for nine years, I served under one of the most authentic senior pastors you're ever going to meet. Here's a picture of him. I don't think he'd mind me sharing this. His name is Kevin, and uh, Kevin is a, is a Dallas Seminary grad, very bright, magna summa cum laude from Dallas Seminary. This is his wife, Carla, and, and Kevin's a big guy. He's about six foot four. He was a tackle at Taylor University back in the day, and, 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 and he's kind of a very forceful personality, which I think contributed to some of the emotions that he had because when you're that passionate about stuff, it can go all over the map. And uh, yet he taught me for nine years what it means to live an authentic life. True story, I'll never forget this as long as I live. We, we hated it when Kevin would go on mission trips because when he'd come back, he'd make us all feel guilty for being Americans. Do you know people like that? <laughs> like he'd go to India and he'd come back and go, we have it so good here and you should do this and you should do that. And I'm like, I'm living in a 1,000 square foot house. I make 40 grand a year. I got three kids and you want me to feel guilty about that? And it was really, we'd hate it. It was like, go back to India. I mean, it was just hard <laughs> when he came back. And it was really hard on his wife, Carla. And I remember once he came back from this trip, the mission trip, and this is a true story, and I could just tell the next day in church that he and Carla had not had a good night. They had just been fighting because she came in cold and he came in distant. And, you know, here we are, it's church. We've got to be in our best behavior, and he's supposed to preach. And it, it just was like, wow, this is going to be an awkward day. And I can still remember sitting there in the front pew and I was sitting here and Carla was next to me and Kevin was next to her because y'all had to sit in the front. It was a good Baptist church and, and we're sitting there and, and Kevin gets up to preach and I'll never forget what happened next. He gets up behind the pulpit and he just paused there for a minute. Yeah, like that. You could just like hear a pin drop. And all of a sudden he looked at the congregation and he says, I can't preach today. 
because I treated my wife incredibly badly last night. And then he looked at Carla in front of everybody, and he said, honey, I am so sorry about the way I treated you last night. I had no right to say the things that I said, and I want you to know that I repent in this moment, and I love you more than anyone else on planet Earth. She started to sob uncontrollably. I mean, the racking sob of shoulders, and, you know, I'm not a toucher, so I didn't know what to do, and that felt awkward, you know, and I'm just sitting there watching this whole thing. And I thought, what is he going to do next? And he looked at Carla, and he said, do you forgive me? And I'm so glad she said yes, because it would have been really awkward if she said no. And she said yes, and he said, okay, now I can preach the word of God. I've never in all my years seen something like that. I I mean, talk about authentic. And and that's just the tip of the iceberg on how this guy was. When I was leaving Detroit in 1999 and 98, I was looking for a church to become a senior pastor of because I was ready. And Kevin and I were sitting in the parking lot one night. Now, (laughs) this sounds so bad. He looked at me and goes, you know that out of 350,000 churches in the United States, 99.9% are not going to want you. I said, why is that? And he said, because you have learned to be way too authentic here. And the average church just doesn't want that kind of authenticity. When I was looking to come to Scottsdale Bible back in 06, 07, I had an associate pastor of my church there said, don't come to Scottsdale Bible. He said, it's a wealthy, upper crust church in a town that is anything but authentic and real. It's like the the town of plastic surgery. He said, you can't find realness there. He said, that church will eat you alive. He said, they'll steal your very soul. And I came here anyways. (laughs) You see, I think that's, no, no, you don't, don't, no, 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 come on. (laughs) See, I, I think that's the challenge for us in this city, isn't it? I mean, my friend was right about one thing, and that's that Scottsdale, though a wonderful town and a great town to to live in for a lot of reasons, um, is a town that's probably not known for its realness, its authenticity. I don't mean to be mean, that just is. I mean, you can't go around changing body parts and and, and focusing so much on weight and and outward appearance without struggling with some sort of, of reality. I mean, trust me on that one. And I'm not down on the town that we live in. I'm just saying that we have an uphill climb. But here's what I do know about Scottsdale, and this is what encourages me. And that's that as much as it's hard to be authentic in this town, I can promise you that the average person in Scottsdale is looking for something real. Amen? They are. Noni knows that. She's one of our counselors, and she has people come to her who have got the world by the tail. They've made the money, they've changed the body parts, their kids are turning out okay, uh, they're living the good life, they even got a bumper sticker to prove it. I mean, they, they got all that stuff. And yet, inside, something's wrong. Inside, there's an emptiness. Augustine said it best. He said, you see, there's a God-shaped vacuum, a vacuum inside of everyone that can only be filled by God himself. And so try as much as we can to fill it other ways. You can't. And the reality is, now here's where it's important for you and I, is that if we are not authentic with each other, if we are not real, if this place doesn't exude Christ in all of his fullness, but also all of his humanity, 
the Christ that shed tears and had joy, the, the Christ that had fear of the cross, but also joy with the Father. If we don't run that gamut as a church, then we'll never reach a culture that really longs for that. And it'll never reach you. And the reality is, is that we're looking to be a church that is fully authentic. And I think it really is a challenge for us. Somebody said to me recently, well, how do you start that? How do you become more authentic? Listen, it's not hard. Now, this can be scary for some of you. Be authentic yourself. Take the risk in whatever fellowship community you're in and be real. And I know what the risk is, gang. Some of you are saying, but what if they reject me? What if they don't accept it? I mean, I feel shame when I'm honest about these things. And what if they don't accept that? Then what do you do? What did Jesus say to do? Brush off the dust off your sandals and find the next group. I was in a small group in Detroit in that incubator of authenticity for about nine years, same small group. And after about three years, I told you guys this before, I realized after three years of being together at Big Boy every week where all the spiritual things happen in Detroit... I realized there were two things we never talked about. We had never talked about money and we'd never talk about sex. And we're all young men. Young men not talking about sex. Young men not talking about money. You're missing the fellowship boat on that one. You really are, because young men are struggling with their sexuality, and young men are also dealing with the whole financial pressure and all that. So I actually brought it up to the men. And I said, guys, I don't mean to freak you out, but we've been together three years. We're convincing every week. We're praying and doing all the Christian stuff. We've never opened up our wallets and we've never gotten real honest about our thought life when it comes to sex. <laughs> the next week, they all brought their checkbooks, <laughs> which was a nice way of saying they didn't want to talk about sex. But eventually, <laughs> but eventually we got around to that. And you know how we got around to it? Now, now men, listen to me. I said, I'll go first. I said, this is a big risk, especially back then. I said, because I'm your pastor, <laughs> but I'll go first. And I shared with them some of the struggles I had as a young man when it comes to those things. And I shared with them some of the things that I need them to pray for me in that. And you watch, as soon as you start opening up about those things, they could have said, well, gee, that's way too much for a pastor. We don't want to hear that. You know, we don't want to be in a group with you. That's fine. That was a risk I took. But it didn't happen that way. As I got honest with them, like dominoes falling, <laughs> all other four men eventually got honest as well. And you see, I determined right then and there, and that was back in the 90s, I never want to be a part of a fellowship group again. I never want to be a part of a group again that's hiding and faking. How about you? And Christians have been doing this for thousands of years. The Bible says, confess your sins to one another so that you may be healed. And that's what we need to do. That's why you need to be in a group, the right group, that can take who you are. It's time that we become real. So we got transformational Bible teaching. We got engaging worship. We have authentic community. Let's be real, gang. And then lastly, and this is going to seem a little bit anticlimactic after what we just talked about with authentic community, uh, but this is very important, is that our value is service-based outreach. Now, do we, what do we mean by that? Service-based outreach. Um, Jesus actually is the one who taught us this, and it's very rich. In Mark 10, verse 45, Jesus is speaking, that's why it's in quotes, and listen to what he says about himself. He says, for even the Son of Man, meaning Jesus, did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Now, what's going on here? Two things you want to connect here, and that is service and the gospel. 
Jesus said he came to serve. What does that mean? He taught us. He healed. Uh, he provided hospitality by turning water to wine. He washed people's feet. In other words, Jesus exhibited a lot of the spiritual gifts and what it means to serve others when he was on this earth. And as he served, he then linked it to the gospel as he went to the cross and gave his life so that we might be forgiven for our sin. And what he asks us to do as a church, I don't miss this, is to follow this same pattern. And as we deliver up the gospel to the culture around us, do it through serving. And again, that doesn't mean that all the other ways are wrong. I mean, it's okay to hand out a track, I guess. It's okay to knock on somebody's door, though they're going to think you're Mormon, but knock on somebody's door and, and share the gospel. I mean, th those are other good mediums to do that open crusades. I mean, there's lots of ways we've invented in our culture to deliver the gospel. But I'm here to tell you, gang, nothing beats Jesus's way of rolling up your sleeves and serving those around us. Amen? And the cool thing about... That was really pathetic. Amen? <laughs> and the cool thing is you can do that anywhere. You can do that on your job. You can do that in your neighborhood. You can do it through your church. And the cool thing about Scottsdale Bible Church, I, I see Archie, one of our longtime elders here, for 55 years, this church has followed that pattern. Way before missional, which is the word for it now, we're missional as a church, meaning that we go into culture and we become on mission and serve people. Way before missional became popular, Scottsdale Bible Church was doing this stuff. This church has believed for 55 years that the best way to win Scottsdale is to serve them. And so we have been involved with entities like Matthew 25 and Phoenix Rescue Mission and St. Mary's Food Bank and, and, and working with medical clinics down in the city and, and even serving our city here by adopting two Title I schools and asking the mayor, how can we serve? I mean, that's the whole history of our church. And see, the beauty of serving, of service-based outreach, is that at some point while serving them, they're going to say to you, Sister Trudy, why are you doing this? <laughs> and, and if you're Sister Trudy, you say, well, the reason that I'm doing this is because I love you because Jesus loves me. So I'm doing this to serve an audience of one, and it's God, and he's asked me to love you, and I really do love you, and because of that, I want to serve you. I mean, it's a natural inroad, very natural into the gospel. And so that's why, by the way, and again, I, you know, I asked my wife last night, I, it takes a thick skin to be married. I asked Kim last night, I said, so honey, what'd you think of the sermon? And she said, well, you know, it started off as an infomercial, but then it got really good. And so I didn't know what, to, what she meant by that. But I can understand that because when you're doing a vision message like this, you're trying to get people involved. And so if it feels like that, I, I apologize. But, you know, this is why we ask all of you to serve. Again, we don't do it to keep busy. We know you're busy. We do it because we know if we can get you serving, now watch this, the gospel gets out there. Be because it's through service, as Jesus taught us, and through loving others that way, that the gospel will naturally rise to the surface. Now, one last thing before we go, and this is your take-home point. Nine years ago, the elders decided that the umbrella of all of our values was going to be grace. What do we mean by that? It means that in the way that we relate to God, we relate to him as a God of immense grace. A God who could have said, you are resigned to hell, 
because your sin deserves that. But he didn't say that. He said, I will give you grace by sending Jesus so that you might be forgiven. Uh, look how John describes Jesus when he came to this earth. John says, for of his, Jesus' fullness, we have all received and grace upon grace. And so we believe that at the core of God is this idea of grace and that it is by grace, as the Bible says, that we have been saved. And, and what the elders decided nine years ago is that that umbrella needs to encompass all of our values that if you can picture the four values we've talked about today, transformational Bible teaching, engaging worship, authentic community, and then service-based outreach, they all fall under the umbrella of God's grace. And, and that we see this as a way of delivering up, as 1 Peter 4.10 says, delivering up the manifold grace of God to those around us. Why is that important? Last thought. Some of you have wondered, how can I show grace to those around me? It's really not complicated, gang. You show grace to those around you by being transformed by his word. You show grace around you by engaging God on a regular basis in worship. You show grace to those around you by living in authentic community that is real to the point of joy and weeping. And then you show grace to those around you by serving and loving them as Jesus did so well. The umbrella of all of this is his grace. And at least for me, that fires me up. I can't wait to see over the next, next decade what the Lord does through us when we understand what makes us, us. And I hope you're with me for the journey. God, thank you for our church as we've established, which is one expression, one local expression of your universal church made up of all believers. And God, I thank you that your hand of grace, your hand of goodness has been upon this church for 50 plus years and that, Lord, your hand still sustains us. And Lord, I believe in great part that is due to your grace. That's really all the parts. But Lord, it's also due in great part to the fact that we have faithfully been true to the values that you hold, the priority of your word, engaging you in worship, living in true fellowship and authentic community with each other and then serving you as if you might return tomorrow. God, I thank you that those are the values amidst many others that drive us as a church. And Lord, I'm excited to see that as we continue on the narrow road, how you might use us. God, remind us each as we go from here now that these are also the values that translate into how we function in culture. These aren't Sunday values. They're Monday through Saturday values that as we are transformed by your word and engage you and live authentically and serve you, that God, you're gonna use us throughout the entire week and we're grateful for that. So God, we praise you and we thank you for your word and for your truth, for the presence of your spirit and for the gathered church. And we pray these things in Jesus' holy and precious name and we all say together, amen. amen. God bless you guys, have a great day.